This is KMTT And today is Thursday This Zman Chorev Taf Shin Ayin We'll be having a series By Rav Kalman Newman On Society and Halacha Hello This is session number 5 In the series on Halacha and politics Or Halacha and society And today we will continue to talk About the authority of the king both in the area of Dinema Monot, questions of monetary issues, and the authority of the king to determine questions of life and death of Dinema Fashot. As we said last time, this question is important because if indeed we come to the conclusion that a present-day political regime can have some, at least, of the powers of the king, we have to know which powers can be translated to that of the king? In what way does this type of polity that we'll discuss later acquire some of the powers of the king? Before we go to that, I want to emphasize one point, which is probably self-evident for most of the people listening, but it's something that we do have to be aware of before we go on. That is the very basic fact, again, something that's probably self-evident for most of us, that the king, whatever his powers are, is subject to the laws of the Torah. The king, as member of Am Yisrael, is subject to the laws of the Torah in the same sense that every member of Am Yisrael is subject to the command of Hashem in general and to the laws of the Torah specifically. Just perusing through, let's say, the list of mitzvot in the beginning of Hilchom Melachim of the Rambam, we can see that the king is commanded in additional mitzvot to everyone else. For instance, Shaloya Belon Nashim, he's not allowed to have too many wives. We won't go into details of that halacha. Obviously, that's a moot question today after Cherem Darbenu Gershon. Shaloya Belon Susim, he shouldn't have too many horses. He should not have too much money. So these mitzvot are additional to the obligations of the king towards mitzvot in general. In other words, we have to take for granted that the king is subject to Torah Hashem and to mitzvot Hashem. And of course, the mitzvah that perhaps typifies that fact is a mitzvah that doesn't appear in Hilchot Melachim, but rather elsewhere in Mishnah Torah, is the mitzvah of the king to write Mishneh Torah, an additional Torah. That mitzvah appears in the Rambam, in Hilchot Filinum Zuzah and Sefer Torah, and Sefer Ahava. And that mitzvah is L'chtov HaMelech Sefer Shani La'atzmo, K'day Shiyu Lo Shnei Sifrei Torah. So technically, that uh, mitzvah uh, is in Hilchot Sefer Torah. The Rambam uh, sees it as an additional mitzvah to the mitzvah which is incumbent on every one of Am Yisrael, there is a mitzvah to write a sefer Torah, the king has an additional mitzvah to write a second sefer. Right? But obviously, uh, in a deeper sense, this doesn't belong to Hilchot Sefer Torah, it really belongs to Hilchot Melachim. It has to do with the special status of the king. And the fact, however, we are to understand that mitzvah, there's no doubt that the fact that the king writes a second Sefer Torah means that the king is obligated and bound to the Torah, certainly no less than any other Jew, 
even though the king has certain unique responsibilities and certain unique powers, but these are not uh, external to the Torah, but rather they are uh, given him by the Torah, and that only uh, creates a greater need for him to be always cognizant of his devotion to the Torah. Again, as I said, this is probably self-evident, but if we remember, of course, in the ancient world, there were many kings, there were many societies, which saw the king as a uh, superhuman being, as some kind of divine being, not only reigning in divine right, that God entrusted him the powers of the kingship, but that the king, the personality of the king, uh, is unique. The personality of the king is some kind of a divine person. Uh, this, we know, the combination of uh, emperor worship that was common in the ancient world. So these are all things that uh, clearly the Torah does not accept. For example, uh, in medieval Europe, there was a belief that there was a certain disease called scrofula, which is a type of skin disease, could be healed by the touch of the king. The king's royal magic touch was able, uh, according to that belief, to cure illness. So that type of uh, uh, idea of concept, what the king is, that the king has some kind of magical powers, that I think is far from the understanding of Torah and certainly from the understanding of Halakha. The king is subject to Dvar Hashem like everyone else and he is subject to Torah like everyone else. And what we are asking, at least at this stage, are what are the what are the powers that the Torah entrusted the king with in his political role? We also have another mitzvah which illustrates the commitment of the king to Torah, no less or perhaps more than the rest of the people. That, of course, is the mitzvah of Hakel. Right, the mitzvah of Hakel is at the end of the Shemitah year, the entire people gathered together. And the king reads the Torah, or at least parts of the Torah, in their ears. So it's obviously clear that the king here is not someone who is above Torah, but on the contrary, the king is the one whose responsibility is to repeat and reiterate the commitment to Torah of Am Yisrael. We mentioned the Gemara in Sanhedrin, and also appears in Tosefta, there's a machloket in which Rabbi Yossi says, Kol ha'amur b'parashat melech, melech mutarbo. Everything mentioned in the parasha describing the king, Rashi explains in Sefer Shmuel, that it's permitted for the king. Rabbi Yudha Omer, lo nemer parasha zo, ele kedela yem alehem. The parasha in Shmuel is only in order to scare the people, but actually it does not describe, in fact, what the true authority of the king is. This is not part of the king's authority. We raised a number of questions last time, uh, and we'll have to expand on that this time. That's basically, uh, if we say that uh, does that mean that the king has absolute rights? The description, the rather terrifying description of Shmuel, of this king who's going to arbitrarily take away your, your uh, wives, your family members, will we'll make you all into slaves. Uh, is this to be taken literally? If we say, Melech Mutarbo, does that really mean the king has absolute and arbitrary powers? Or does it mean that the king has powers over these areas, but 
he is still limited by some kind of rationale. It does have to be uh, follow some kind of equity. That's on one hand. On the other hand, if we say that Kol Amor Parashat Melech Melech Asur, okay, the expression does not appear in the Gemara, it appears in some of the Rishonim. If we said the king does not have the authority of the cases of Parashat Melech, uh, what indeed are his powers? What what is left, as it were, for the king to have? So these are things that are somewhat left open. Uh, the Rambam seems to have somewhat of a middle way. On one hand, he does use the expression uh, in Paragim Halacha Aleph, Kol Ha'amor B'Parashat HaMelech, Melech Zocheb. Okay, he doesn't use Mutar, but Zocheb. He, uh, he benefits from all the things in Parashat HaMelech. But Rambam is very careful to limit, to explain how these different powers mentioned in Sefer Shemuel are limited. Uh, for instance... Uh, the power to confiscate land, he said he limits it. V'lokeach in halachavav, v'lokeach hasadot v'hazetim v'akramim la'avadav, k'sheyelchu la'milchama. It's specific for the cases when people are going to war, and therefore it is necessary. Uh, or uh, having people run before him, so it's clear that this is also part of the public need. He says, It's pretty clear that this is part of his general responsibility uh, as for the public good and um, warfare and to enhance his own prestige is also part of the good. So when the Rambam indeed believes that the king has these far-reaching powers, but... They are limited by the uh, fact that they have to be done in a proper way or for a correct need. Parenthesis, we could say, of course, the question would remain, who is to determine what need is proper and what need is not proper? That has to do in general with the whole issue of who judges the king and who judges if the king is functioning within the halachic realm. For our purposes, we can say, let's assume that true, the Beit Din Haggadol is some kind of institution that does determine if the king is functioning properly. In order to emphasize how the Rambam takes this whole idea seriously, that the powers given to the king should only be used in the proper context, so at the end of Perik at the end of after he describes all these different powers that are given to him, uh, most of them uh, in light of Parashat HaMel, the story of Shmuel, he concludes the chapter by saying as follows, so in all cases, says the Rambam, his actions should be l'shem shamayim for the sake of God, and his intent and his entire direction should only be to preserve and to protect and to promote the true religion, to fill the world with justice, to break the arms of the wicked, and to fight the wars of Hashem. Because 
the only purpose of instituting a king is to do mishpat umilchama, justice and war, as it says there in Shmuel, v'shoftenu malkenu v'yetzelifadenu v'nilchamatmilchamtenu. These are exactly the purpose of the king, and therefore, I think the Ramam is trying to say that those powers given to a king should only be used in the context of the aims of kingship as a whole, and the halachic way he phrases it, it would seem to me that even uh, this could be subject to some kind of judicial review. Is the king indeed following Mishpat HaMelech for the purposes of Mishpat HaMelech? Right? Is he using the authority he has for the purpose that the Torah entrusted him with that authority? So as I said, on the other hand, there's an opinion that uh, we don't pass in that kol amor b'parashat ha-melech melech mutarbo, but the opposite, melech asurbo. That expression, again, doesn't appear in the Gemara, it appears in a few tshuvot, especially in Ashkenaz, there's a tshuva of the Orzarua, there's a tshuva of Baleatosvot, uh, it's mentioned in Muka Yosef, that uh, there's a distinction, this is based on the distinction between the rule of Dina the Machuta Dina that applies to a non-Jewish king as opposed to a Jewish king who doesn't have the authority of Parashat HaMelech according to those Rishonim. Uh, what does that mean, though, according to that opinion? What exactly does a king have as an authority? For instance, the Abar Benel in Melachim Aleph, Perkaf Aleph, when he's talking about the story of Navot that we mentioned last time, so he explained that according to the uh, king, uh, according to, to the halacha, he, uh, we've mentioned already that Barbanel is not a big fan of monarchy, and therefore he says, Kafiyat Torah lo hayarashai be'otam advarim shezachar hanavishim. Well, these things were not he, they were not permitted, and therefore uh, the uh, the actions regarding Navo were not proper because. He should not have done it. Why? Because taking the votes, vineyard, was an arbitrary act, which was just for his personal good. Whereas the Barbanel says, According to Rabbi Yossi, the king did not have the authority to take the vineyards and the fields, but only the fruit of the vineyards and the fields, in order that his servants, or we could say his soldiers, will uh, will need them when they go to war. Therefore, it doesn't say that you can confiscate the homes, but only the fields, the fields, in other words, the fields for the purpose of the fruit. So it would seem to me that the distinction here is not between uh, a home and a field, or even between the capital and the benefits, but the distinction is, what is the goal? If the king is just doing it for his own personal benefit, then he can confiscate things. The legitimation to confiscate things, says the Abarbanel, is for the purpose of war, which is clearly part of the mandate of the king. So what is that Abarbanel saying? The Abarbanel is saying that according to the Manda Omar, according to the opinion that Melech Asurbo, that he is, does not have the authority that are based on this, the description of Shmuel, then the king can confiscate things as long as they are for the purpose of the role of the king, the mandated role of the king, such as war. 
In other words, at least according to the understanding of the Abrahamel, the difference between uh, his approach and the approach of the Rambam is not so large. The Rambam, true, says that the king does have the right to do it, but he limits the definition so as to create a situation where the king is limited uh, in the use of those powers. Whereas, the Abrahamel says, Melech HaSorbo, what is Melech Asur? That, that what Shmuel was talking about was a kind of arbitrary, absolute power. That, the Melech is Asur, but he can only do things for the purpose of war. So again, the way the Rambam takes Melech Mutabor limits it, and the way the Harbabanel takes it and expands it, it leaves uh, not much of a difference. However, I saw a contemporary writer who talks about this issue, and he asks the question, what exactly is the scope of the authority of the king according to the Manda Omar Koloha Amor Pasalamelch Melchasorbo? And he says something rather surprising. He says that the only way that the king can function is immediately after ascending to the throne, he has to come to an agreement with the Beidin Hagadol and with the community as to the scope of his. Authority. In other words, the king has to negotiate almost with the people in order to derive, to define his authority. Well, what is a king? So this, such a king, of course, is truly a melech evion, right? certainly a lowly king who has to beg uh, powers from his people. Uh, it seems to me that that is uh, inconceivable, certainly does not fit in with the biblical notion of monarchy or even with the notion of the Rishonim, to say that the king is bereft of any powers, can, cannot run the country, or cannot tax, to say that without express agreement of the people, that would seem to me uh, very far-reaching, and I find, hard, uh, I find it difficult to, to accept that position. Now we will go into the question of the authority of the king to execute people. And that really uh, divides itself into two questions the question of the king as a type of judge who can execute people for their crimes, or the special category of someone who is moreid b'malchut, who is guilty of sedition. I'll quote, the Rambam in Chom Malachim, Per Gimel Halacha Yud, says as follows, Kol ha'oreg nefashot, shalo b'raya b'ra, o b'lo hatra'a, afilu b'eid echad, if a person kills another and there is no clear evidence or if no warning has been given him, or there is only one witness, or if one kills accidentally a person whom he hated, the king may, if the needs of the hour demanded, put him to death in order to ensure the functioning of the social order. Tikkun olam. He may put to death many offenders in one day, even though that's usually prohibited. Hang them, which also is not the way the Torah says murderers should be treated, and suffer them to be hanging for a long time so as to put fear in the hearts of others and to break the power of the wicked. 
So here we have a number of cases where the king is permitted to forgo some of the regular halachic rules of evidence in order to promote a social need of tikkun olam, in order to make sure that people will not murder in a way that they will not be able to be caught, in order to deter other murderers, that is tikkun olam, and therefore the king has that authority to execute people, uh, even though, according to the usual halachic rules of evidence, they would not be subject to death penalty. In Hilchot Ratzayach, Perik Bed, Halachot Bed he talks about another type of situation where the king's intervention might be appropriate. There he talks about Hasocher Horeg Laharogut Chabro, someone who hires a, what we would call today, contract killer to kill someone else or Shalach Avadav, where he sent his servants, or Shekfatov Inichol Fneari, person caused someone to die, but not in a way that it can be halachically defined as murder, just he he tied someone up uh, on the railroad tracks, as it were. But in, in all these cases, he says that it's possible, Imratzah HaMelech Lahargam, Bedin Malchut V'Takanat HaOlam, Harshud Biyado. If the king wants to execute these people, and part of tikkun olam, then it is legitimate, and then it is proper. So note that both of these cases that the Rambam mentions are cases of murder. We do not find the possibility of the king executing someone for other kinds of infractions, let's say theft. We don't see that. Even for tikkun olam, we don't see the possibility that the king could execute uh, someone uh, who's, you know, a, a thief, even if this was seen as a major uh, danger to the kingdom. We don't see that specifically. And also, we don't see uh, the king having authority to kill people for infractions on Ben Adam Makol. That's not the area that the king has to deal with to punish people for Averod Ben Adam Makol. That is handled by other institutions in the halachic world. What are the common denominators of these various situations in which we say that the king can execute a murderer even if either the laws of evidence of usual halachic laws of evidence don't allow for an execution in such a case or if the action was not clearly defined as murder? What is the basis for this concept? A number of people, uh, I think it first appears in the Klichemda, and it's expanded upon in uh, Professor Blinstein's book on Ekronot Medinim B'mishnat Rambam, talk about this power of the king as an extension of Hilchop Noach. We know that there is a legal system that the Halacha describes as the Noachide legal system. B'nei Noach have laws of their own that they have to enforce, and that uh, an infraction on Hilchot B'nei Noach is Chayav Mita, and B'nei Noach are not subject to the halach rules of evidence. In other words, the, the fact that you need two witnesses, the fact that circumstantial evidence is not acceptable, the fact that grama is not considered an action, all these rules don't apply to Hilchot B'nei Noach. So B'nei Noach would execute someone, for instance, a murderer on the basis of one witness, and some have suggested, as I said, that the king 
when acting in this role, is actually expanding the category of B'nai Noach. He's actually enforcing the Noachide rules on B'nai Israel. The Sanhedrin itself does not follow Noachide rules, but the king is part of a general ethos, one could say, of Tikkun Olam uh, that is included in the Noachide Code, and therefore he has the right to execute people according to the rules of evidence of Noachide. Again, we'll emphasize the only specific examples that the Rambam brings are in examples of murder and not of other crimes. Another case in which a king can judge someone to death or put him to death is the Dinah Mared B'Malchut. Pergim Halachachet, the Ramam says, Kol Mored B'Melech, Yesh L'Melech Rishut L'Hargo. Afilu Gazar El-Echad Mishara Am, Sh'yelech L'Mekom Ploni, V'lo Halach, O Sh'lo Yatami B'Tovi Yatsa, Chayav Mita. V'im Ratsa L'Hargo, Yaharog, Sh'nemar, Kol Ish Asher Yamret Picha. The king is empowered to put to death anyone who rebels against him. Even if any of his subjects is ordered by him to go to a certain place, he does, he does not go, or is ordered to stay home and fails to do so, he is culpable, and the king may, if he so decides, put him to death. That we learn from a Pasuk in Yehoshua. The example that the Rambam gives that, uh, of the king saying to someone that he should go to a certain place, and he didn't go, and then he is guilty of being Mored B'Malchut, uh, that is pointed out by the Rishonim, it's pointed out in the name of Rabbi Meir, the father of Rabbi Notam, as well as uh, in the Smag, Mitzvah Kofi Dalet, that this perhaps is learned from the case of Uriah Chiti. Uriah, the king told him to go home, and if he didn't go home, he was subject for death penalty. Now that perhaps is very illustrative about what we're talking about. On one hand, we say there is a dinam mered b'machod. On the other hand, we know that David Amelech certainly was not seen as doing a positive action by encouraging Uriah to go home, and he was really doing something, uh, in this case, of negative nature, and we know, of course, what the response of Natan was, etc. So what I'm trying to say is that there is such a category as mered b'machod, but it doesn't really mean that the king is encouraged to so just give arbitrary decrees to people to go here, to go there, to do things that don't serve his function of the kingship as a whole. And, of course, if someone defies a king in a matter that has not bearing on mitzvah Torah, right, we'll see later that the king cannot command to go against the specific rule of the Torah. But if the king orders someone to do something, then it is a infraction of the honor, of the dignity of the king to deny, defy that uh, command. However, and I'll say this quickly, although I've seen that some people say differently, it would seem to me that the notion of Mered B'Malchut in this sense, that, that defying any request of the king as such is a capital crime, has to do with a certain understanding of what the king is. You know, that has to do with the special person of the king as the absolute ruler and as the person who embodies the body politic or the people as a whole. Why am I emphasizing this? Because, again, when we go to the question of the possibility of translating the status of the king to other institutions... So, 
uh, it seems reasonable that other such institutions would not be able to say that any defined of any command or any law would in and of itself be subject to capital punishment because it is a uh, defilement, uh, defiance of the rule, the state of law. And indeed, in the uh, article on Mered B'machot that appeared in Tchumen Yud, uh, someone makes that case, specifically that that idea of Mered B'machot as a capital crime, that is inconceivable today. On the other hand, the other things we mentioned, the possibility of a king to execute someone for a dire social need, for instance, okay, to prevent murderers from going scot-free, that perhaps uh, can be transmitted to a different political system, and perhaps if we say indeed that there might be another kind of political authority that inherits or retains, regains some of the powers of the king, that it could be that such an authority would be able to execute people. So that's uh, the distinction I want to make between the power of the king to execute at least murderers. We'll see if other people will raise that next time. But uh, the possibility of people to execute people as a punishment for tikkun olam, for a specific social need, as opposed to the uh, possibility of the king to execute someone for impinging on his honor, on kvod hamelech, that certainly uh, does not seem to be applicable to any other political regime. And again, next time, uh, we'll start dealing with the question of how, indeed, do we translate the powers of the king to other types of political regimes.